Hello everybody and welcome to Ed Voices, a podcast by Education International. Today's conversation will focus on digital learning and its implications on equality and quality in education, the professional autonomy of teachers, the privatization and commercialization of education, and many other key topics. We'll do this within the context of the OECD report, Digital Education Outlook 2021. Martin Henry, Education International's Research Coordinator, will be your host. Over to you, Martin. I'd like to thank all of our guests from coming today. We have Randy Weingarten with us, who is chair of our EI OECD Advisory Committee, Committee and president of the American Federation of Teachers. We have Stefan Vincent Lecran, who is deputy head of division and senior analyst working for the Center for Educational Research and Innovation, CERI, at the OECD. And we have Professor Carol Campbell, who's actually been promoted and is no longer associate from OIS at Toronto University, is working on leadership, higher and adult education with a focus on system level change. So we're going to start with you, Randy. And the first question is that as Stefan points out in his introductory chapter for the OEC Digital Education Outlook 2021, AI has changed the landscape for education. What do you think are the strengths and weaknesses of this major change and how do you think it has been impacted by COVID? You know, pre-COVID, um, there was this question about um, whether or not AI um, was a substitute, not a supplement for public and education and in-school education. Um, by the middle to post, um, to hopefully post-COVID, I think that the answer to that question is resoundingly no. It's not a substitute, it's a supplement, which is what the answer should have been from the beginning. Um, artificial intelligence, technology, all of these things should actually help the human endeavor. But at the end of the day, the human endeavor, relationship building, resilience building, the connection between students and students, students and teacher, the way in which school operates, we know that when we are in person, that is the single most important thing we can do to help children thrive socially, emotionally, academically. Thanks, Randy. I'm gonna pass that to you now, Carol, to give us your perspective. Thanks, Martin. I, I fully agree with the comments that, that Randy has made. Uh, you know, there are potential strengths from artificial intelligence. And, and of course, over this past period of the pandemic, we've seen the need for online learning and the role of technology but it does need to be seen in the context of something to support 
students' learning, progress, equity and well-being, uh, and that teachers' professionalism and professional judgment are part of that. So I think there are strengths. I think we've seen that in supporting students, also in the way to communicate with, with parents and families to make them part of this progress for their, for their child. But the weaknesses are where it's not used as a professional tool, it's used in a different way. So I think the positives have to be around when it's used professionally, educationally appropriately, rather than some form of standardization or, or commodification of teaching and learning. And to the human part, what we discovered, so here I'm in Ontario in Canada, um, our schools were closed for the longest period of time in, in North America last school year. And we saw a, a significant increase in anxiety, loneliness, feelings of isolation. So this year, parents have had a choice about whether their child returns to in-person schooling or online. And some have chosen online, but the vast majority have chosen in-person for a wide range of reasons. So to Randy's point, when, when we were forced to try this out, we, we see some of the benefits but we don't see this as a full-scale displacement of, of teaching and in-person schooling. In fact, we see even more the importance of those. Thanks, Carol. And I'm sure you'll come back to this, but it's been interesting to see how your premier has been uh, approaching the issue of online education. Stefan, over to you. It's your chapter. Yeah, so actually, I also agree with what was said. You know, I think that I would like to highlight what Randy said about technology just being a supplement, you know, to human beings, interactions, and actually something created by people to help people and support people and not something that is actually taking any direction of itself, as sometimes we, we, we hear. I think it has a lot of potential for actually making uh, education more effective, you know, and so that, you know, through the personalization of learning. And interestingly, I would say, you know, sometimes we tend to believe that technology and social and emotional learning don't go in the same direction and it's either or, but I think what's interesting is that we can see that some of the solutions that have been developed are precisely about actually developing the social and emotional skills of the students, you know, for example, some things which are done to actually make um, people who have, you know, the uh, uh, autistic children, for example, able to participate and engage more meaningfully you know, in, in class or to actually maintain the engagement of students and, and, and their learning. So I think that there is that aspect. Another one is possibly also can help on the equity basis, you know, and, and so how some of the solutions can help to not only include more, some of, more of the students, but also to support the learning in a targeted way and make sure that actually they catch up and they learn at a, a faster pace than what sometimes they can do um, uh, in, in a class. Okay, thanks, Stefan. I'm going to move to Carol now, and we're going to move on to the next question. Some IT companies expect teachers to adopt without question digital programs their schools have been sold. Ontario has also experienced particular problems as a result of virtual solutions. Their plan to continue online classes means a student could go through K-12 without ever setting foot inside a school. Should education systems adopt protocols which regulate the IT offer to schools and students? And what role do you think teachers have to play in this? Carol. 
Thanks, Martin. So, so I'd actually like to, to share two examples from Canada, and obviously one is Ontario that you've asked specifically about, but it kind of builds on, on what we've discussed already. These platforms can be used in different ways. They can be used in a supportive way or an unsupportive way. So I'm actually involved in an evaluation in Nova Scotia, one of our other provinces, where they're using um, online curriculum linked resources and apps as part of teaching and learning. And we're actually seeing benefits from that. Uh, teachers like that they can go in and select resources that have already been reviewed to be safe and appropriate and curriculum linked. They can build digital libraries that they use. Students like the interactivity of the online environment and that they can access the resources in school and at home. So, so there are ways of doing this that are supportive of teaching and learning. Um, however, what we've seen here in, in Ontario is obviously we move, we move to remote learning, as I've mentioned. So last school year, uh, all parents had the universal right <clears throat> to request that their child could have fully online learning. Um, and then, of course, schools closed, so there wasn't a choice there. But in this new school year, that universal right for a parent to request fully online learning remains. Uh, but what doesn't remain is the, the pandemic funding to support that piece. So, so what we're seeing are, are classrooms where there might be 28 students in person and two online at home. Um, the teacher is provided with a headset, there's webcams, there's devices, sometimes even body cams are being used. Uh, and it's really, really challenging. Um, the reports that we're hearing are that students don't like it and, and teachers don't like it. It really restricts how they can teach. You know, if you're, if you're wearing a body cam or you have a webcam, it raises issues about privacy for the children in class, but also those homes that are being beamed and connected to. Um, we're finding it difficult to, to teach in ways that are appropriate. I mean, it's different from teaching fully online or fully in person. This is trying to do both simultaneously. Uh, we have concerns that even though teachers are doing their very best, the students that are at home are perhaps not having a, as good a learning experience because of the nature of the work. Um, and the other piece is that the, the province, the government, have um, recommended one private sector provider to be the platform for online learning for Ontario. Uh, so teachers are required to use this one system. Um, it's, it's standardizing how they teach because it's a one system. It's unclear what happens to any resources that teachers upload into the platform. So there's a concern about commercialization and intellectual property and ownership. Um, so, so we have this co combination of what was supposed to be an emergency response combined with austerity that's resulting in standardization, commercialization, privatization within our publicly funded education system. And, and there are deep concerns about what that impact may be. It's a pretty grim picture you paint, Carol, but um, it's important that we're aware of, of what the, the range of responses are. Um, Stefan. Yeah, so 
I think that obviously IT companies to me shouldn't, you know, uh, expect teachers or anyone to just adopt what they're proposing without any question. And actually when asking about, you know, the whether we should regulate the offer, obviously that will depend across countries most likely, but actually there should be some kind of check about the accuracy or the effectiveness of the solution that are being sold to, to schools, in my view, uh, which can be done, you know, through procurement policy or giving guidance to, to schools, but there should be some mechanisms for which we know more or less, you know, what to expect from all the different uh, technology. The second thing which is very important to me is, is that teachers and practitioners have to be actually engaged in the design and testing of those IT solutions so that actually they can actually be beneficial to them and they know how to use them. And as Carol said, you know, there should not be a disruption or something that prevent them from doing uh, their job the most effectively. It shouldn't actually be an extra burden and or become the, an extra cognitive load or whatever with them. And actually this is something that many of the researchers working on that pay attention to, uh, you know, what is the best way to display some of the information that is gathered in a way that it's not intrusive. And the mention of, you know, the, the body cams or the headset that you have, well, it can be good for experimentation, but at the end of the day, it's not great for a real life setting. And so there are a lot of thinking around that, how to make these things more, I would say, ambient and not too uh, intrusive and visible. That's music to my ears, Stefan, when you say teachers have to be involved in their design and testing. You know, that's a favorite issue for us. So it's good to hear you bring it up. Randy. The thing we always do now, I am on mute. <laughs> Get off of mute. Someone, um, someone had a coffee cup that said, please unmute yourself. In a, in a Zoom I was in a few uh, weeks, a couple of days ago, and it was just, you know, and it just like everybody else is laughing right now, it made us laugh. And frankly, I think this laughter and joy is really important in this moment of, uh, in this, you know, months and months and months of this work. Um, I think that Carol and Stefan said a lot of what I would have said. Um, you know, I, 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 um, I get amused by uh, these various different entities that sell us things. And then they say, and these are the laboratory conditions that you have to have in order for them to work. And so laboratory condition number one is um, everyone is supposed to actually have internet, high-speed internet, a good device, you know, not working on like one of these iPhones, but, you know, or, or even worse, um, I have like a little flip phone, but, you know, they're supposed to have like a nice little, I'm doing this on purpose, you know, either a very nice iPad or computer that we're on. And, you know, around the world, we teach in circumstances where that is more um, the exception than the norm. And so if you don't have high-speed internet at home, if you don't have the appropriate devices, then the, either at home or in school, then this whole premise that um, what we get sold is gonna work is kind of a mockery. 
and it makes people feel bad. And so the equity issues are really important to deal with. Number, the second piece is um, um, that, that uh, and you see this with these uh, companies right now as well. It's not, the most important training is not the two hour overview. It's what happens when things go wrong. It's the constant professional development. It's the, what if X happens instead of Y? And so too often, educators are left with having to MacGyver things, um, left with having to figure them out. And so it's part of the reason why um, it's not just that in the best of times, things you know should be a supplement, not a substitute, but we're often sold a bunch of things that are supposed to work in a certain way. And when they don't, we don't actually have the company to go back to. There's no accountability to go back to it. And it creates a lot of skepticism for the product that gets sold. I think you pick up a really important point, Randy, with the equity issue. And the peer principles I know are very close to Stefan's heart. So I'm sure there'll be an opportunity to pick that one up as we go around. Um, you are first this time, Stefan. So the Outlook talks a lot about data use and capture. Many teachers have expressed concerns about data use in education and are not always sure about how their data is being used. The same applies to students. How can schools be reassured about data use? Well, I think the first one is that, you know, countries need to have a strong regulation about data collection and data use, you know, and, and, and to be fair, uh, many within the OECD do already have that, you know. So if you think of GDPR uh, in, in Europe, FERPA in, in the US and, 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 you know, across many countries. But of course, there is a second aspect because not everything is regulated. And I would say, which is more about ethics and how we deal with that, you know, what is a decent way of doing it? And actually so that there is trust being created. So I think, take for example, you know, classroom analytics, which are those software which monitor what's happening in the classroom, including the teacher. Sometimes we give the teacher some feedback about what to do next or how she or he have behaved in the classroom and, and how to improve things. So that's a typical case where you wouldn't want actually those data to be used for assessment of the teachers, you know, saying that, oh, you haven't been. And so it's almost a kind of uh, ethical, decent thing to do that those software were meant to support the professional development and learning and, uh, you know, to give feedback to teachers. And so that's how they should be used and not as an accountability uh, tool or assessment tool. Now, if you think of some of the information systems that have been designed recently, and you have two different uh, philosophies about it and which actually relate, one is basically that you have to uh, make schools accountable to the data that are collected about them because otherwise they won't pay attention and they won't try to improve. So that's one way to think about it. And actually uh, in some, I, I could take some US examples of that way of thinking. Uh, and in some other places, it's really more, we have to design it in such a way that it really supports teachers the best. And so that they're going, these systems are going to be used by the teachers because they are so well designed, the dashboard are so helpful, etc. It's a bit of two different ways of going about it. 
uh, it's still unclear which one is the most uh, effective, but we can obviously have preferences for one uh, um, or the other. But at the end of the day, it's really about building trust, you know, between all the different stakeholders and actually also making it visible that collecting those data and using the data is actually beneficial to either the teachers or the students and the families and the interaction and all the schooling and, and, and learning process. So I think if you don't get that, if you don't see the, the point and you don't see the benefits, then it will always be perceived as a burden. I think the trust issue you bring up is really important. And it does make me a bit twitchy when I think about learning analytics, watching the classroom and the way it's going. I find it hard enough with Microsoft telling me I've got a meeting coming up. Um, Randy, you're mute. Again, I'm muted. <laughs> we, we are having, the reason I'm doing this is because there is a big building going up um, about a block away. And what you can hear is when I'm not muted. So I figure um, I don't want you to have to hear all that. So my apologies. Um, I want to build on what Stefan just said. I think that there's, look, there's a lot of these issues that are important to deal with. The trust issues are important in so many different ways. The, um, the privacy issues are really important. There's a lot of issues that um, uh, that um, have um, that that we have to kind of work through um, um, in you know in in so many in so many ways. I think that when you don't work through these issues, there's a lot of skepticism that teachers have that um, this is just a replacement strategy. And, and whereas I really, you know, I mean, I, I said this in my first answer, the privateers had the best shot they've ever had to say, you know, they had months to perfect the replacement theory of education. And the public resoundingly said no even in places where you didn't have equity issues, even in places, you know, even, even you know, when we've had um, in higher education, uh, a huge push for online in, in lieu of in-person. Uh, I think all across the country, regardless, uh, all across the world, regardless of circumstance, um, the, the connection that we have as human beings to each other is so key to the education experience um, that that um, that that's that that um, the the privatizers are not going to win here. Having said that, companies will be better off if they work with educators, not just the highest level, but people who are the end users rather than trying to override them. And the best programs from robotics to Lego to any of the education tech programs, the best ones are done with the real input of both students and parents as well as educators. 
And that happens both in terms of content as well as time on this, as well as all the ancillary issues, including trust and privacy, time on the screen, time in person, no, on and on and on. So I just, you know, I just, I, I just, I know I'm, I'm, I'm repeating. I feel like we're all three of us are, you know, you would think that we would look at these issues differently. I think what is kind of striking is how similar our responses are and, I would really ask um, government officials, school officials, and companies to kind of heed what our responses have been. Thanks, Randy. And, and that human-centered future you're talking about is absolutely critical to all of us. Carol. I don't have lots to add on this question. I, I agree. I do agree with Stefan and Randy. Um, I mean, to, to go back to, to the core of the original question uh, and to agree with Stefan, a regulatory framework is absolutely essential. We do have regulatory frameworks around data use and privacy in all of our education systems in Canada. They're quite strict. Uh, and you know, to Randy's point uh, and Martin Education International, the, the teacher unions have played a key role in negotiating around these regulatory requirements and privacy and data collection and how that's involved. Um, so, you know, I'm a, a academic in a university. Uh, the rules apply to me as well. So any data that I collect through my research has to be stored securely and it has to be stored in Canada. We are not allowed to store on, on global servers. So, so that requires private sector providers to work closely with us because it, even though it's a global market, the Canadian market has specific requirements and I'll look to Stefan, but I'm, I assume that's not unique. And then to Randy's point, yeah, the work that I've been involved in where working with teachers on integration of tech, uh, professional learning, partnerships, teacher-led developments are really important. And I remember that teacher identity work fondly, Carol, that we were lucky enough to speak about in Marrakesh just last January. Seems like another world away. The final hurrah before we got shut down with the pandemic. That's <laughs> right. So I'm going to move to you now, Randy. Involving robots in teaching special needs students is a somewhat dystopic image. How might AI and education assist rather than supplant the teacher? You're on mute. Again, I'm on mute. <laughs> and again, again, it's... Um, so I think this is where best practices and policy are very important from the get-go. Because we know now in practice, a robot is not, I mean, um, a robot is not going to supplant a school teacher in the middle of a classroom. Um, and frankly, anybody, and so, so um, and, and I do think that if anybody attempted to do that anywhere in the world, um, it would be, um, I'm not quite sure what would happen first, the memes or the opprobrium for it. I don't know, you know, which would happen first, but it would be pretty disrespectful to the students in the classroom if something like that happened in terms of a robot. Now, that doesn't mean that robots 
are not important in terms of, of education. Uh, take um, career tech ed, take uh, um, education around um, some health work and uh, health pathway, take education around other kinds of pathways. Um, robots and robotics are a, are a key ingredient um, uh, to learn in lots of different ways. So it's, we're all kind of singing out of the same hymnal. It is a supplement. It is sometimes a very important vital piece of education, but it's not a substitute. Um, but I would say that I think it's within government and OECD's um, circumference of responsibility to say these things as clearly and directly as possible so that it's not just a fight on a local level. Um, and I'll say one more thing. No rich parent would want a robot substituting for an educator in front of a classroom. So why the heck would we even attempt to talk about it for kids who are not rich? It's an equity issue as well. So. This is a place where policy and best practices would go a long way to end this piece of the debate so that we could actually use AI um, and figure out the ways that AI work as, uh, as, uh, as, as supplements and as ways to help inform instruction and help assist instruction. Thanks, Randy. I think you've given us a very powerful image there of, of what, what we can and can't have. Carol, would you like to pick that up? Yeah, and, and this really goes back to some of Randy's opening comments as well as her last uh, response. When we talk about AI or any form of technology, we need to think about it as a resource, just a resource in the same way that we have lots of other resources in classrooms, you know, textbooks, manipulatives. Uh, so it's a resource, but it requires professional judgment, professional practice. It's not a replacement. The idea of a robot being fully in charge of a child with special needs is, is dystopian to, to echo your question, Martin. But, you know, we've had integrated technology and assistive technologies for special needs for a long time now. So I, I, I'm not opposed to the idea of integrating technology to support students' learning and equity. And again, one of the evaluations that I'm working on where all students in the classroom had access to a device and online resources. I know that's not true in every classroom, but in this particular case, and actually it was seen as, as, as equitable because before that, the children that had been identified with special educational needs received assistive devices, but it was very obvious in the classroom who they were. So now everyone's using a device, using the same online resources, but individualized and differentiated to their needs, whether it's language learning, other forms of special educational needs. So, so I do think there's a potential if it's used ethically and appropriately with professional judgment at the forefront. Thanks, Carol. Powerful um, line on professional judgment there. Stefan. Yes, I would actually fully agree with that. And perhaps I would comment by saying that uh, First, let's say that we, we, the technology is not there yet, you know, to substitute for 
a teacher and it's not going to be around for a while. So that we don't have to worry too much about that, you know. It's making progress, but it's really very, teaching is just too complex, you know. It's a too complex uh, activity for a robot, you know. And we know that some of them have, are pretty good at doing very specific tasks, uh, but not more than that, you know, at this stage. Second problem is the cost. And so here I wanted, you know, it makes a long time I wanted to comment on what Randy was saying about equity and cost. So let me take that occasion to do it. Uh, but it is interesting how with the pandemic, you know, how it has changed things, the fact that indeed, you know, we have increasingly we're expecting families to have the right internet at home, the right devices, etc. But some countries in the OECD, high income countries, uh, we're thinking about the question of what does it mean to have free education? You know, what is it a free education? Uh, is our education system free? You know, and that's given all these things. And actually, I think it's a very interesting question that we would really not really uh, have considered pre-pandemic, you know, rethinking about all these different things. So I think it's, there is a really quick question new ways of thinking about all these different things. Now, playing the David's advocate and actually uh, uh, building on what Carol said, you know, I think there is a room for robots and social robots, for example, as a resource uh, in classroom, as a resource that is being used. And actually there is some evidence on how uh, some robots, for example, can be pretty useful with a teacher to teach, for example, foreign languages, you know, so it's been tested and how sometimes now that, you know, you have the, um, um, the, the, the speech technology, which has become pretty powerful, you know, and in terms of the accent that the students get, etc., in some countries, in some ways, are much better off to have a team of a robot and a teacher than to have just the teacher alone, you know, trying to teach you what uh, some of the foreign languages. There have been a few successful things showing how they can, the robots can be peers and can be actually also uh, uh, an interesting. Um, alive or companion for, for, for students to, to learn, you know, by making them take this uh, teaching approach and they teach the robot, you know, the robot plays someone who is a bit less expert in that. And so that makes them practice and exercise their ways. And so I think it's a resource, as uh, Carol said, that works in some cases. Uh, and I think it's just one more resource. And so we shouldn't actually say that we don't want it because it's robots, you know, we should say that's just something that can be used in the classroom. Unfortunately, it's so expensive. So I would have some equity concerns at this stage, you know, to uh, who can actually benefit from that or not. Um, but why not, you know? It can make, uh, and interestingly as well, you know, there is actually this empathic feeling of people for robots or for someone. So it is pretty interesting that we tend to think sometimes that uh, it doesn't work because of lack of empathy, but there is in fact a certain level of transfer towards robots, even so children know their limitations. So we, for example, one thing we've seen in for special needs uh, uh, technology is that what the technology does in many cases is that it reinforces the links with the other human beings in the room, you know, because the, the machine can go up to a certain level. And then at some point, of course, it doesn't work anymore. So that in fact here, actually the child connects with the teacher, with the operator, uh, you know, either to make fun of it or to just see what, where to go after that. And so it's just a kind of, uh, you know, a, a new ways of, new tool, you know, that to, to connect people as well. 
I knew you'd have a different spin on that one, Stefan. So it's good to have a breadth of views. I'm going to jump to the last question now, and uh, I'm just going to give you an opportunity to talk about what system level mechanisms you think we need to put in place to ensure teachers are part of the decision-making process around the use of technology, its use and how it shapes learning. And we're gonna start with you on this one, Carol. Thanks, Martin. Um, so, you know, Martin, you mentioned the Constructing Teachers Professional Identity Study that Education International funded, and I, I was part of the research team and, you know, the work at the OECD. It, it's very, like pre-pandemic, it was very clear that we needed to move towards a, a professionally led education system, how it, however you define that. But, but the notion rather than centralised government mandates that the profession need to be involved in decision making at all levels, at the government level, regional or district and at school level. So to involve <clears throat> teachers and teacher unions and, and other people that work in education in these decisions, that changed with the pandemic and everything happened so quickly. But, but we need that now and again. You know, we, we know when we look around the world, you know, Denmark is often held up as the example where teacher unions and government and health sector work together. Um, I'm an advisor in, in Scotland where there's an education recovery group, group that meets weekly with the politician, the cabinet secretary for education, but it involves teachers and the representatives of teachers and head teachers, school principals. So, so we need these collaborative advisory groups at every step and at every stage to move forward together. Um, but we also need, um, you know, teacher leadership. You probably knew I was going to go there, but teacher leadership, uh, teacher innovation, opportunities for teachers to try things out, see what works, see what doesn't work. And then potentially scale it up rather than starting with the large scale implementation. So I, I think that's really important. And I think it's very important at this moment in time. Um, you know, I, I express my concern about hybrid learning here in Ontario. What we don't want is the governance of education to get set into an emergency response where the government's driving everything. We, we need that piece to move back to a professionally led education system where the profession are, are a key part of this. So that would be my advice. I couldn't agree more, Carol. And if they haven't read our teacher identity work, then they should. Um, Stefan. Well, I think one of the things that actually we see sometimes is, you know, to start with uh, having real consultations with uh, different stakeholders and including teachers. That's, for example, what um, you know the, the French government did uh, last spring or something like that. You know, they had a big uh, consultation about where the, the the education system should go with IT, bringing together unions, government, companies, and what's around. And so, that I think is a very important aspect for decision making. Big question is always, what do you do with the consultation? once it's finished, you know, that's of course. Uh, but I think it's important that people have a chance to voice their concerns to say what they need, et cetera. And that really that is brought together. Second thing I think is for uh, the promotion of educational research, but on practice engaged research, 
So practice-engaged research is, you know, when you really work on designing with actual practitioners, the kind of uh, research questions that you have, the tool, the thing that you try to test, and so that, in fact, these things really answer a real problem or really take into account the realities of what's happening. And I think that there is too little of that. It's difficult to do. It takes time. It is, you know, relatively uh, expensive and there isn't enough. And I think that it's a very something that uh, people doing, promoting education research should, should really be doing. The last thing and is something that we're actually working on. We, we're setting up a, a kind of a forum where we talk with governments and edtech people and other teachers, other stakeholders about how should we think of regulating the relationships between um, the edtech on the one hand and the education system, you know, the, or the, the companies. Uh, and I think that, you know, we haven't got to that, but my personal idea would be that there should be some kind of, of um, mechanism to make sure that, you know, these solutions are tested. And one of the criteria should be that basically they are really tested and designed with in real life context before they can actually be approved. Uh, I don't think that, I'm not sure whether it will be popular or I don't think that this exists anywhere, at, you know, uh, for the time being. But I think it's something which is uh, very important and that we have to start thinking about how, why do we, you know, what are the kind of tools that we use, and especially when they're expensive, you know, uh, uh, what can we expect and what are the kinds of problems that they solve and work with teachers uh, on that at the system level. Okay, thanks, Stefan. And I couldn't agree more about the practice-engaged research. We're, we're an evidence-based organisation, and we believe that we have to have evidence to light the way. Randy, you get the last word to give us the wrap-up around what teachers should um, be able to do. So I, you know, let me just, again, let me just say that on the most salient points, you hear a lot of agreement. Um but I want to kind of lean into about four points, um, most of which Carol has already said. So I'm just saying it in terms of emphasis, which is number one, this is something that needs to be teacher and school and bottom up driven, as opposed to be driven by um, economies of scale or by um, uh, the capital markets or by someone's idea in government about what looks innovative, whether or not it is innovative. I'm not saying that we shouldn't, we, we need to embrace technology. It is, um, we in every, there has been um, many different revolutions in our economy that start with different technologies and we need to embrace technology and not be afraid of it but it needs to be driven educationally through um, from bottom up through the professionalism of those of us who are actually doing the teaching. And there needs to be real, not only professionalism on the part of educators, but that professionalism and authority and autonomy has to be respected. So for example, Stefan's idea about, you know, R2D2 you know, next to a teacher, it could be really cool. But if the teacher doesn't want it, it's not going to work. And it shouldn't work in that situation. But if so, if it's teacher directed, 
teacher kind of governed that's really important. The second piece is that data really matters and, 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 the, and the practice matters. And then making sure that there's real communication about the practice is really, really, really important. And then number three is that things that don't work should be jettisoned. So hybrid, which Carol said earlier, hybrid was a consequence of the pandemic. It, we did it because of safety reasons, because we thought it would weigh, it would help us get kids in front of us and yet you know, deal with the physical distancing that was necessary. It was a terrible practice. I mean, it's not terrible in terms of the performative arts, but it's terrible in terms of attempting to actually having an engaged classroom where half of your kids are in front of you and half are on a screen. So, so, so the things drive it professionally from the eyes of the people who are actually the end users, make sure we have the data, both the things that work and the things that don't, and make sure that those are part and parcel of the kind of governance system around technology that we need to have. They have to be as big a piece of it as the issues around cost and privacy and internet availability and things like that. And last, obviously, that it is a supplement and it is an aid, not a substitute. Thank you. Thanks, Randy. I think that is the, the image that will stick in my mind, supplement, not substitute. And uh, I just want to thank our esteemed panel for giving us their time and, and thoughts and wisdom. It was a, a robust and absolutely opening chat. So I'm sure people are going to be intrigued about thinking through these issues further. Thanks a lot. And we'll see you all soon. Cheers. To get the latest global education news and advocacy, subscribe to Ed Voices on your favorite podcast app or anytime on SoundCloud. And as always, tell a friend, spread the word, and please give us a review on iTunes. Thank you.